We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Gareth Southgate delivers what any good England manager should the chance to be outraged about the lineup and a victory. This is the Euro Daily 2020 with Phil Costa. My name is Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. Nearly said the other podcast, but this isn't that other podcast. This is this podcast. It is the Arsenal Vision. Euro 2020 Daily with Phil Costa. I'm going to find a way to come up with making that smoother. I'm also going to find some music to put in the front that isn't just Arsenal-specific. But you know what? It's all happening in real time. And here with me to discuss it in real time is Phil Costa. You can find him on Twitter at underscore Phil Costa. Hello, Phil. Hey, Elliot. How's it going? Good. We're going to try to cover two days' worth of games in one day today. And the reason we're doing that is because we didn't have a pod yesterday. And part of the reason we didn't have a pod yesterday is because yesterday was a day to maybe take a breath from football um, and think about things in context. And so I don't want to get too bogged down talking about Christian Erickson because obviously everybody will feel largely the same. Terrifying, scary, heartbreaking, and also massive relief at the outcome. Immense uh, sigh of relief knowing that he is going to be okay. There will be more to discuss from this and more to understand how it happened uh, if there are things the game can do to prevent this sort of thing, although th- there may not be, I think certainly it is a chance to celebrate and thank the immense work of the the doctors that were pitch side, the medics, the physios, whatever you want to say, um, you know, potentially life-saving. It was a good teachable moment to remind people to sort of study CPR. There was a lot of great uh, reminders and refreshers about CPR and how to locate an, an AED device, um, you know, going around social media. So, a lot of things that I think were going through people's head, but for me, Phil, it's simply one of the scariest things I've ever seen on a pitch related to a sporting event, an individual player, uh, a scene really unlike any other. And I just couldn't be more thankful that it resolved in the way that it did and in a way that allows us to, I think, throw ourselves back into the tournament, enjoy the football, and feel that we can do that knowing that you know his his life is seemingly safe and sound. So... You know, I, I'd love to sort of understand what the impact of it was for you, obviously in a newsroom covering the event, um, you know, how you were affected by it personally and, and just sort of the the experience of that as it was as it was unfolding. I mean, for, for me personally, um, 
you know, we've, we've seen, especially as Arsenal fans, we've seen leg breaks and, and terrible injuries before. And, you know, it, it, it puts a real knot in your stomach because it's, it's natural. You know, you have empathy for um, for the person and you can instantly understand the gravitas of the situation. And, you know, just watching the first sort of moments of him not feeling great and then collapse down to the ground, You, this wasn't a normal situation. You know, you instantly understood, oh man, this is bad. Um, and already the players were on the scene quickly. The referee was whistling quickly. And honestly, I'm, you know, it feels quite strange saying this, but for a few minutes there, I thought that was it. Um, it, it looked so serious. Um, yeah. And it, it was just putting nausea in my stomach and I just felt terrible for him and for his teammates and um, just a really horrible situation. And, and as you mentioned, covering that in kind of newsroom environment, um, the Euros are you know, what we do this job for. It's a celebration of, of cultures coming together and football and, you know, merging the two things. And, you know, the mood was great the whole day. And as soon as Ericsson fell and the, the medics came on, it was just, you could hear a pin drop in the, um, in the newsroom. Everybody stood up to watch the TVs and it was just a really awful moment. And I'm, I can't tell you how glad I am that he was, um, you know, managed to be stabilized and, and taken to hospital where he could, you know, speak with his teammates and, and his agent again, because I was honestly fearing the worst. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, look, I don't want to say, thank God he's fine, because you know, I don't know that he's fine. I'm not I'm not a doctor. I don't know what the uh, subsequent rehabilitation and treatment will be, whether he will play football again. So I'm not uh, by any means trying to paint this as being a happy ending yet. I, I think the reason is a happy ending though, is to your point that there was a moment when it looked like it was going to be the worst possible ending. And I, I don't really want to get into the moralizing about certain broadcasters and how they handled it. I mean, obviously a tricky situation that I think some did not handle with the aplomb that you'd prefer, but um, you know, I also thought there were some touching moments, the way the fans in the stands were chanting Christian and Erickson back and forth to one another was both haunting and, and excellent the way the fans threw finished flags onto the pitch to to help sort of create that privacy screen as he was being let off, the way the players circled him, because obviously not an event that really needed to become a spectacle. And it, it was a grotesque spectacle in that. And so uh, thankful for that. Just a super emotional moment and a moment bringing everybody together just in silence, staring at this scene, hoping that it would not turn out with the worst case scenario. And thankfully it didn't. So, you know, I, I mean, I'd like to move on from it. I think the point is we hope to never see a scene like that again, obviously, uh, you know, a similar sort of situation with Fabrice Muamba years and years ago, but just something very, very scary. And, and thankfully, um, you know, we are able to move on and talk about football. The one thing I want to touch on though, we won't really get into the Denmark Finland game other than for me to ask you how you felt hearing that they were coming back. Look, I have the, privilege of being old enough to remember a, a dark time in NFL football where paralyzations were not as infrequent as they should be. I mean, I don't think there's been one in almost a decade, but I can remember ambulances driving onto the pitch, paralyzed players who would be paralyzed for the rest of their life being loaded into ambulances, driven off in the games restart. And this had a, a whiff of that. I mean, seeing the the Danish players crying 
in their warmups to come back out on the pitch didn't feel great. Uh, they they paid the harshest price on the pitch as well in terms of losing the game. And I, I just think the irony, of course, of UEFA presenting themselves as the guardians of the game during the whole Super League thing and then sending these players back out to play. Now, I realize Erickson had told the players he wanted them to go play, and I'm not totally sure what alternative there would have been. I, I think uh, Mike Goodman tweeted, I'm not sure there is a good solution to this, and, and I'm sympathetic to that. But how did you feel about that decision, about the the just seemingly impossible task for the, the Danish players in particular to get refocused for the game and, and what happened subsequently? I mean, yeah, I completely agree with what you said. I, I, I couldn't put myself into that, into their shoes, you know, about having to watch one of their best friends go through arguably, you know, the most horrific moment he'll ever experience. Um, and then having to come back out in 45 minutes and play a second half of football. Uh, it kind of reminded me of the Borussia Dortmund bus being attacked um, mm. in, in 2017. Yeah. Um, even though there were no casualties, there were a few injuries, I think specifically to Mark Bartra, uh, who had some, some lacerations on his hand from the, the glass and shrapnel. And they played the next day. Um, and Thomas Tuchel and all the players have been consistently outspoken in how uh, daft that decision was and how they were terrified and scared and not in the right frame of mind at all so for the for the danish players to come back in less than an hour um i couldn't i I honestly can't put myself into that mindset and into their shoes and you know it's what you said we don't know what the alternatives were um would it would it have been just the next day or completely called off um and we don't know if uefa were, were putting pressure or if ericsson maybe had urged his teammates to go on and maybe that can have another effect of, oh, let's go and win this for Christian, for example. But, you know, they were utterly dominant in the first half and to see them lose the game was no surprise. And, you know, it's just a shame because, as you said, football felt pretty insignificant after that. And, yeah, I just have so much time and respect for how they dealt with the situation, how they spoke not only about their friend, but about their country and the pride in which they they wanted to compete with each other in arguably the most difficult circumstances. So um, I think it will just have to be scratched off as as a really traumatic day for everybody that had one of the better outcomes. As you said, we don't know the full story, but hopefully the only way is up now. Yeah, I, I mean, look... <laughs> Whatever happens to Denmark in the rest of the tournament competitively, it will feel like they won the Euros in the sense that Christian Eriksen is alive and and seemingly well, and that will be a positive outcome for them, whatever goes on from here. What I'd like to do is move on from this, just draw a line under it and say, thank God. Uh, you know, hopefully we don't see any scenes like this in football, well, f- forever, you know, for a long, long time and, and, and ideally forever. But yeah, very, very scary. Very, very happy that it worked out well. And there was no point in talking football last night because that was the story. And that remains probably the biggest story of the tournament. But now I think thankfully we can move back to the football. And so what I'd like to do, we'll cover every game in a little bit of a lightning round because now we have six of them to cover and and probably not the Denmark-Finland game for obvious reasons. But I want to start with the England game because obviously it's coming home. Um, And it is, I think, the one that there's going to be the most interest in. We're going to do it this way. I think the format we're settling on is a headline, a stock rising, you know, someone or something that that 
really caught your eye in each individual game, and then something we learned. So we'll do that for each game, but for the England game, I want to have just a little bit more of a robust discussion. So the first thing I want to do, Phil, is just say there's nothing like a lineup argument, uh, you know, a, a debate on Twitter over the lineup. My goodness, it is it is a very Arsenal experience, and it felt very familiar when it happened with England today. We said in the preview pod that Gareth Southgate is going to have people that are mad at him every lineup he picks because he's got too many really fun, young, attacking players to fit them all in. And so I had some sympathy for him. But I have to admit, I didn't see him leaving, like, Jaden Sancho completely <laughs> out of the, the team. So in terms of his selection... You know, before we talk about whether it worked out and how it worked out, how was how what was your immediate reaction to seeing who he picked to start and and who he picked to not even be in the team? Yeah, I mean, naturally, everybody's eyes go go towards the Jaden Sancho situation. Um, but in terms of the the eleven itself, I didn't mind it. I thought it was nicely balanced, particularly in sort of the midfield attacking areas. I thought there was a nice balance between attributes all across those areas. Um, I, I maybe had a small issue with Kieran Trippier starting at left back because I, for me, unless your name's Philip Lahm, I think you lose a lot of balance and just general attacking impetus um, having a right foot on the left because it naturally brings the game inside. So maybe I would have thought if Shaw's not available, if Chilwell's not selected, maybe go with Bukayo Saka. Obviously, that's me being slightly biased, but I thought it was a more natural fit to replace the other two guys. Um, I mean, Trippier did fine on the day, but I just felt straight away, having looked at the side, left back, and, you know, where's Jaden Sancho were my, were my two initial thoughts. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> look, maybe it is a case that, you know, the reporting was, it was just purely a decision. Maybe the case is that, from a fitness standpoint, there's a sense that he's not fully there, but that that's certainly not how it was reported. I just think it's a really odd choice. I mean, I, I wouldn't have too many England players ahead of Sancho full stop just in terms of quality. So there you have it. Uh, another player, though, I think worth talking about is Raheem Sterling. I think this is a great example of why we should be careful about putting too much into form. Uh, Raheem Sterling is really one of the great players in the Premier League and one of the great English players, period. But he had, by his standards, sort of a down season in terms of end products. Still a lot of the stuff you expect from him, though, getting into really good positions and just being a very dangerous player. And he gets a reward with his first major tournament goal for England um, on a really nice run, a pretty good finish with someone bearing down on him. Um, how do you think Sterling played overall? Because in a way, it was it was sort of a quintessential Sterling game, I thought. Very dangerous, but a bit wasteful. Yeah, agreed. Um, I thought he was good, actually, today. He... What I liked about his performance was that he was always looking forward. Um, there was no sort of dallying on the ball and going back to the midfielder and then getting it back. He was like, control, who can I run at? Where can I go to cause the most damage? And I like that mindset, particularly from players in wide areas because Harry Kane can't do everything. Um, and actually, he looked a little bit off the off the pace today. I'm not sure if that was just whoa, a general... Whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, this is mostly an Arsenal podcast, so let's put a little more heat on that. He was dreadful. <laughs> Harry Kane, they should have brought him on. Oh, wait, he played? Yeah, he was dreadful. Let's not let's not sugarcoat that on, on the Arsenal Vision Euro 2020. Let's make sure to get both both boots in the Harry Kane, please. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, it wasn't his best game, and I thought he Thank was you. dropping way too deep um, for some weird reason. I know he does that at Spurs, but you don't need to do it for, for England so much. We kind of need someone in the box. Um, 
so yeah, but I thought I thought Sterling was really good, nice and positive, and we kind of needed that because Mount and Foden are kind of the touch heavy guys who like to link up and do the little one twos. So we kind of needed Sterling to offset those two and just basically look for the quickest route to goal every time. So I thought he he provided a nice balance in the in the kind of a front four. Yeah, to be fair, I mean, England started the game really, really brightly. It was a really good start. Foden a little unlucky not to score early. I'm wondering, there was a period after that where I think the game got away from England a little bit and the the Croatian midfield was able to come into it, especially Modric, and, and that is the strength of their team. But I wonder also if the weather played a role. Now, on Twitter, where things like he's 29 until he's 30, that's how it works, have developed over the years, we've had a, a pretty fun... Uh, debate about what is hot on Twitter. It's um, pretty quintessential social media, I would say. But setting aside what I think is hot, by the standards of an English summer, it was a hot day. Do you think that the early sort of energy and directness and pace and, and just general effectiveness of the play was impacted by the weather? I mean, it's been a long season. It is a hot day and certainly would have been draining as the game wore on. I mean, for sure, it's a it's a contributing factor. Um, I'm not sure it played a role in England dropping off. I just think Croatia sort of woke up into the game a bit because mm. there was no way they could be like that for 90 minutes, surely. Um, you know, like you said, uh, Luka Modric got onto the ball, Kovacic, uh, Brozovic, especially those three in midfield, they kind of just slowed things down, were playing little passes between themselves. Um, you know, just to settle a few nerves, get people on the ball again. So I think it's quite common, for, and in this case, England were the home team, for the home team to really go for it for the first five, ten minutes, try and score. And if you can't, then you just sort of uh, relax back into the natural flow of the game. But I never felt England were struggling or out of control. I always thought they had the game managed, and I quite liked that. It was very professional. Um, and, you know, it was largely a positive day. I think everybody on that pitch performed well today, and barring a couple of standouts. Uh, Calvin Phillips, I thought, was well, excellent yeah. in midfield. Uh, yeah, I wanted to get to him, because, uh, you yeah. know, anybody who's looked at the running stats from Leeds this season has seen that they, they almost look impossible, like there's a data error, because they're so far beyond anybody else in the Premier League, and Calvin Phillips just ran and ran and ran and ran and pressed and ran and pressed and ran and had a great game and carried the ball forward, and... Uh, I thought he was brilliant for the assist to Sterling. Really a coming out party for Phillips. I mean, is this a player that you have had your eye on prior to this? Or was this sort of a surprising performance for you? I thought he was clearly the man of the match. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that he was the best player on that pitch. Um, and he's someone I'd, I'd known about, I'd watched, but I think he's really reached another another level under Bielsa. He He really trusts him in the middle. And he's not just... I think the Declan Rice combination was perfect because he just literally sat there and let Phillips do all the running. Um, and it's funny that you mentioned the running stats because Bielsa uses a, a funny sort of method that is nicknamed murderable by some of the players where they basically make a small pitch in training and all the coaches stand around the pitch with a ball in hand. And whenever the ball goes out of play, there's one instantly back in. Uh, being thrown back in and Bielsa plays the role of the referee and basically he decides when the game's done and these sessions go on for you know 45 minutes an hour of just constant sprints and changes of direction and that's when you realize just how fit leads are because 
as you said, they are head and shoulders above. And you could see Phillips pressing in the 85th, 90th minute, winning his duels, you know, driving forward into the corner flag. And you're just like, this man is like Superman, you know, he's just his levels didn't drop throughout. And I thought this was a really good performance for him, especially with England. Um, maybe struggling in deep midfield with Henderson's injury. I thought he made a real statement about his um, sort of position within the side. And, and it was a real message to Southgate about, you can trust me now. So I enjoyed that. Yeah, I mean, I I think it's an interesting day for England where Mount and Sterling and Foden and Phillips looked really bright and really effective. And Harry Kane didn't. And it's not the end of the world for England because I think the future is very bright, especially in the attacking portion of the pitch. And Harry Kane's days, you know, being the talisman for England, maybe are numbered. Uh, I think it would make England a much more watchable, likable team. Those of you listening who are, are England fans, I I would love to know, especially if you're an Arsenal fan, how you manage to root for the guy. But I, I get it. I get it. The national pride thing does matter. In terms of Kane, um, the, the miss at the far post, did you have that as a miss? I, I have to admit, I had a little bit of sympathy because to me it looked like it may have been deflected. I don't know. I mean, uh, was that a, was that a bad miss for you? I thought it was. Yeah, I, th- I thought he made a clean enough contact to be able to direct it towards goal from that far out. I understand the defender was was right there with him challenging, and the goalie's obviously coming out. So naturally, maybe you take your eye off the ball, and the post was there as well. But I thought he he got there, and for me. He, a player of his quality should have been able to turn that towards goal, but it wasn't like an, oh my God, I can't believe he's missed that. I thought maybe because of his standards and his quality, I maybe expected him to be better, but it wasn't like an absolute glaring miss from you know one yard or anything. I know his ribs made contact with the post, but to me it had a feel of stay down and act hurt a little bit to take Absolutely. away from the miss. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm with you. I like, agree. Yeah. Yeah. Um, look, I... I think it's a good performance. There, there's not much negative to say about it. And, and, you know, I thought great to see Bellingham get on. I don't I don't think people fully appreciate just how special he could be um, to be doing what he's doing at his age because he wasn't just playing in the Bundesliga and the Champions League. He was thriving in it at 17, which is really astonishing. But looking forward, where does this performance and result put you for England? I mean, obviously, a win is good. It means they're on pace to go through. But what I mean is... Does this make you more encouraged about their tournament chances or does it not move the needle at all? Just sort of job done. How do you, how do you feel as a forward looking statement based on what they, what they did today? I mean, it, it definitely gave me a, a good feeling. I was kind of feeling good about England anyway, before the tournament, but this, what surprised me and impressed me the most was how sort of professional it was. They never, even when Croatia did have like one or two moments, I never felt that the team was ready to collapse or, you know, have a a terrible moment, like a mistake or anything like that. It was very secure. Everybody knew their roles. Everybody was nice and secure on the ball. And as you said, you know, there was options off the bench uh, that were really strong. So for me, this England team is is good. I think people maybe put their expectations low because they don't want to get disappointed. But for me, this is easily one of the best sort of four or five teams in the tournament. And I thought this was arguably their toughest test. I know Scotland are going to really put a lot into the into the game. Um, but for me, they passed this test with flying colours. And uh, there's... Um, you know, the expectation for me now is that they should be winning this group. So um, I'm in a good place with England, actually, even though my 
you know, I don't have a, such a strong connection to the national team, but I've, I'm feeling good about them now. I have to admit, as someone who is kind of rooting for England and thinks there's a lot of fun talent in the squad, I look at the team that he picked today, and I don't know if that team can go all the way. And one thing I, I kind of wonder, Phil, is will this be a squad game for Southgate? I mean, I don't think I see them going through the tournament with Shaw, Grealish, and Henderson, for example, not starting games. Do you think he will try to lean into the advantage he has in depth and freshen things up from game to game? That it could be a Sancho instead of a Sterling, that it could be a Shaw instead of Trippier, it could be a Henderson instead of Declan Rice, who I thought was maybe a little superfluous today, um, although I could understand the reason for his inclusion. Like, there's, there's a lot of players that didn't start today that could just as easily start and be as effective or more so. So is it possible that maybe Southgate will see this as a tournament to to manage almost like a squad game? Because I don't know if you could definitely look at this 11 and say this is England's best 11. It's just one, one version of it. Yeah, definitely. And I think this is a chance for him to sort of change some minds about his coaching ability. Um, because as you said, there's different players to use different systems to potentially use as well. I mean, today he used the 4-2-3-1, which they used in the warm-up games prior to the to the Euros. And recently we've kind of shifted away from the three, but you could easily play a three with everybody fit. Um, so there's a lot of flexibility within that squad, some different roles, some different qualities to bring in. Um, and I think Southgate, like you said, this is where he can really show people, look, I understand what this game needs, what this game needs, um, why a certain player should be playing in this game, for example. And England are spoiled for choice in that department. There are so many good players in this squad. Um, and I think, as we mentioned, this this result will only sort of raise expectations for people because even though it wasn't exactly a you know um, marauding 4-0 win over one of the best teams in the tournament it was very good very professional and you could see that there was room you know for the for growth you know which was probably the most encouraging thing for me yeah <clears throat> and I have to say I feel um I feel pretty happy for Sterling like I think he's a player who's been unfairly maligned misunderstood I think he's a sensational player and going into this tournament coming off a down season, you know, by his standards, a bit of a shame. He gets to start in the first game when there are other players that would have definitely a strong claim for that position, and he gets the winning goal. Um and and, and a really nice run to get it to. So I'm I'm happy for him. I thought he looked dangerous and look, I, I got no problem rooting for England. And and if England can continue to win games with Harry Kane looking really, really bad, that is pretty much the perfect outcome for me. So I I, I could go on with that. Uh anything else you want to say about that game or should we start whipping around? No, no, feel free. Move on, move on. All I'm right. in the zone. I'm ready. Yeah, all right. Well, the only thing I'll say is we'll have an Arsenal Vision podcast tomorrow um, and we'll cover the England game, I imagine. I, I don't think Clive in particular could be stopped. So you'll get you'll get more hot England content from that too. Um, real quick, Wales-Switzerland. What's your headline from the Wales-Switzerland game? Um, I think my headline is that Wales have something. I mean, they largely even though they had a bright start in the first five, 10 minutes, Switzerland took control of that game very quickly. Um, and you could see like Freuler getting onto the ball, Xhaka getting onto the ball. And, you know, someone that we highlighted briefly in the preview pod, um, Breland Bolo from Borussia Mönchengladbach, he ran the two centre-backs absolutely ragged. Yeah. Uh, just too strong, too quick. He showed some really nice bits of skill as well and was maybe unlucky not to score a couple more goals. But they, you know, Wales found a way, 
and you know there was a lot of debate for their team about whether they should start a false nine or with Kiefer Moore up front and it just goes to show you you know he can be ineffective for most of the game but he had their two best chances mm. um, so strong in the air so you know it's a real focal point and I think you know Bale looked yeah just uninterested in the middle so he was too deep. Ramsey as well. I thought he had some nice moments, but he didn't look 100% fit to me. You know, Ramsey is always someone you can tell who doesn't look 100% fit. And I think he still has a few percents to, to go up a bit, but I was impressed with how they fought back. Yeah, ag- agreed. Um, but I'm not sure, you know, I, I think if Gareth Bale is the Gareth Bale we saw from this game, I don't think they stand much of a chance because he needs to be special. And I, I didn't, I see a Gareth Bale that is is pretty sufficiently diminished to no longer be special enough to carry this team. Um, maybe that's wrong, but that that's what I saw from the game. What's your uh, who's the player that impressed you? I mean, in, in terms of the the game itself, it was Imbolo, Brian Imbolo. Yeah. He's kind of flattered to deceive a bit, um, especially for Switzerland. I mean, he had a good season with with Gladbach last year, but I've always kind of you know, not been so sure about him for Switzerland. Is he a striker? Is he a left winger? But I really thought he sort of found himself in the team, um, sort of floating around Harris Seferovic a bit. And he was just, at, at, at points, it was like a one-man battering ram, really. He was just so direct and strong. Um, I mean, that header that he scored, he absolutely bullied Connor Roberts. Like, he didn't stand a chance um, and it was easy for him. And, I, you know, he had a couple of other opportunities firing just wide of the post. And, you know, he was really, really good. And I saw, I think that sort of was his announcement on the international scene after maybe some years of not really fitting into the side. Yeah, agreed. I thought he was fun to watch. So then uh, from that game, what, what did we learn? What did we learn about those teams going into the, the rest of the tournament? Well, well, I think Switzerland need to improve their finishing, first of all, because... Seferovic, like he always seems to do in, in international competitions, he has that very Giroud quality of missing chances and then, you know, screaming up to the heavens, um, you know, woe is me, why did I do that, you know, but it's just like, mate, put the ball in the back of the net and maybe you don't have to scream. Um, then there was a two or three chances where I thought, Jesus, this is a guy who's played for Frankfurt, Benfica, and he couldn't even, you know, be close to the goal from pretty promising position so I thought Switzerland needs to improve their finishing for sure and for Wales I don't know I, it's difficult for them because they're such underdogs um, but if, if they need to do anything like you said they need to get the best out of Bale and Ramsey whether that's possible I don't know um, but maybe it's time to start relying on some other people uh, like Dan James who I thought was really good he was their biggest threat by far and it was quite strange that he got taken off um, but maybe they need to find a different balance in the side to accommodate more people instead of just relying on the same two again. Yeah. <clears throat> well, let's move on to Belgium, Russia, and uh, it, it's the fighting Lukaku's that come away with uh, the win. This one, obviously, for me, <laughs> he he's a storyline. Wow, was he good? But what's your what's your headline from Belgium three, Russia nil? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's difficult to look past Lukaku. Uh, I think I'm going to call my headline. They've always got a chance with him up front um, because he's just playing at such an incredible level at the moment. Really, I was very fortunate to be able to watch him most weekends for, for Inter, maybe when a lot of people in England weren't watching him. But he's just 
I don't know what it is in the last year, 18 months, he's just become such a well-rounded player. And it's no surprise for me that he came out of this game with two goals. I mean, the first one was quite fortunate, but you still have to be in there in that position and, and to put it away. First should that of be all. allowed? I, I, that felt harsh to me. Like that sh- I felt like that should still be an offside goal because the defender knows there's someone over his shoulder. So he kind of has to deal with it. It's an awkward ball and he, he doesn't deal with it. And as a result of like kicking it, Lukaku can just you know fire it into the back of the net, and it's still a, a reasonably difficult finish. But like, if he just leaves it, it's offside. It felt it felt like a harsh application of the law, I guess. Yeah, maybe, but I don't think like if, for example, like Lukaku was making a run, um, and the defender sort of messed up the clearance, then maybe it would have been offside. But I don't think he was even interfering too much. Mm. Um, maybe that's what swayed the situation. But I agree, maybe some referees would give it some some wooden. Um, but yeah, he tucked it away really nicely. And and the second one in particular, just so sort of strong and quick on the break. And then the finish with his, you know, with his right foot was clinical. And, you know, he's, he's kind of, I, I can see him going up a gear, up a level. And that's a, a scary prospect for some of the teams in this tournament. I mean, honestly, he could have had a couple of assists too, because early on he was getting past people and cutting it back beautifully into the box, and a couple of shots were blocked. It, for the size of his body, the the speed that he covers the ground is is incredible. He just a, an absolute challenge for any defender to handle because he can he can be more physical than you, he can be faster than you, he's technically good. Uh, you know, someone tweeted, I can't remember who it was, that the the Belgium plan seems to be give it to Lukaku and see if he can solve the problem, and he can solve the problem. Um, you know, Russia had basically nothing to offer. So rather than asking you your player that impressed you because it was Lukaku, we can just jump right ahead to what you learned about these teams from this game. No, I mean, it was quite conclusive, actually. Obviously, you can't make too many uh, conclusions from one game, 90 minutes of football, but Belgium looked very settled in their system, very aware of what they needed to do. Um, they never, they were never really troubled by Russia, and I thought they lacked a lot of quality, actually, particularly technical quality. I can't doubt their physical quality because they were, you know, trying hard until the very end. But within the team, you don't look at the players and think, you know, this is someone who can create something. Or so I was quite underwhelmed by Russia, in all honesty, and Belgium pretty much, you know, coasted through this game with with no energy spared. And I think maybe they'll quietly fancy themselves with with the spotlight on some other teams for a change. I thought Carrasco was a little bit fun. Um, I I thought Russia, yeah, Russia reminded me a lot of Turkey on opening night. (laughs) Just uh, no resistance and not much to offer. One last little thing from this game, Eden Hazard did get on, and I I thought he looked okay, actually. Um, Like, maybe there's something there. Do you think Eden Hazard has the chance to play a big role for Belgium, that he could get it going? Because I thought he looked all right, actually. I mean, it's what we mentioned before, you know, players with quality, they don't lose the quality. It's just, it's just how often they can apply that quality. And even if it's not going to be the Eden Hazard we remember, who's like constantly driving at the fullback and creating magical, you know, spinning and swerving runs through six bodies, if they can even get one or two moments from him and it can even be a set piece or, you know, just something that a smart flick in the box then he's going to be more than, you know, prove more than than his weight in gold. Um, but for sure, I think the early stages, 
are more about him getting his feel for the ball again, getting his match fitness, and hopefully they can rely on him in in those moments later on. But for sure, he can contribute. Anyone saying no is just you know, being purposely obtuse because he's still a quality player at the end of the day. A little scary to think that he could maybe find a bit of form and Kevin De Bruyne could come in. And what we saw from them in their opening game is just a a palate cleanser for what they could really be. So definitely rightfully one of the teams to be scared of uh, going forward. So let's move on to one of the surprising, sneaky, fun games of the tournament so far, only outdone by the game that followed it. And that's Austria 3, Macedonia I guess technically North Macedonia won um, a game that I think a lot of people were planning to swerve. And and if they had to, you know, give themselves a bit of a period off from watching the football on a Sunday, this was the one turned out to be a really fun game. I thought, so what was your headline from the three uh, for Austria one for North Macedonia? Well, my, uh, my headline is basically what you just said. That was, that was brilliant. That yeah. was great fun. Yeah, I really, really fun. I really enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, I had my expectations were fairly low heading into the game. I thought Austria would have a pretty comfortable time, um, but from the first minute, it was so open, and I and I loved players just running into open space without a care in the world, and it was great. A, a cooler game, right? I think the weather was a bit cooler, so the pace of the game resembled more of a league fixture, which was great. Um, Obviously, Goran Pandev scoring a goal that vindicates all of us 37-year-olds. If you didn't know, you watched the live stream that we did uh, back during the season. I am 37. Uh, That is a joke, but I won't explain it. Um, So, I mean, yeah, obviously fun seeing a 37-year-old get a goal. But can I just ask you, should that have been disallowed too? I mean, I hate to be the, the fun police, but the keeper has it, and he gets kicked, and that's how it comes free. But does he get kicked, or is it just a natural part of the the contact? Well, I feel I like if a player slides into you and makes contact with you when the keeper has it under his control and that's what dislodges it. I've always felt like once the keeper has it on the ground under his control, he's sort of got a legal force field around him and it, it can't be taken from him there. Maybe that's a misunderstanding. I don't know. For me, it was his fault. I mean, I know there was contact, but you need keepers to be strong, uh, you know, in those kind of situations. And... I thought it was just a natural coming together with the, with the striker mm. who was also going for the ball, you know, completely legally. Um, and I think the goalie just made a mess of it. And then Pandev was there to, you know, to slot it home. And of course it was going to be him. Is, um, is there a reason Arnautovic doesn't start for Austria? Cause like, obviously I don't know the team very well. He's a player who, while I can't stand him is really, really good. Um, and then he comes on and does a really nice job scoring his goal. Is he someone who is, we're going to see starting for Austria now, or, or is that not his role anymore? He's a super sub. I'm not sure. I think he's kind of, you have to consider the level he's playing at. He's in China at the moment. So maybe you can say other people deserve an opportunity more. Actually, I was really excited by the front two for Austria. Mm. Um, Sasha Kalacic was one of the players we highlighted. Um, I don't think he had an amazing game. But Christoph Baumgartner as well, his partner, has a, had a really good season for Hoffenheim. And again, I thought he kind of got lost because Austria did this typically frustrating thing of knowing they have a big man in the box. And for some reason, that just means no team can ever play football on the ground when they have a big man to aim for in the box. Like, I don't know why they were so eager to cross to him all the time when they have a really nice technical midfield. Um and that was really frustrating me in the first half because it was literally every time they would get on the ball, it was like, right, lock it into the box. And then the three Macedonian or North Macedonian defenders would just eat it up. Mm. Um, 
so that that annoyed me a little bit but i thought austria on the whole probably deserved to win uh just they had the quality when it mattered but north macedonia surprised me a lot actually um particularly in the wide areas they were always brave and and looking to create things and i thought um elif elmas from from napoli had a few lovely turns in the middle um and maybe if one or two situations went their way i mean in around the 65th minute there was a chance they had which the goalie saved and that kind of felt like the moment for them and i think after that the only winner was going to be austria um and what a what a goal that second goal was what a cross by david well, alaba okay so so that brings me to one thing i think we have to just discuss quickly you won't see a better cross this tournament than david alaba's cross and it turns out david alaba is an excellent excellent player can you explain to me why he's playing sweeper center back for the first 60 minutes or whatever this game. I mean, that's the thing I don't understand. I, I, you know, once he gets out wide and starts putting in those crosses, his influence in the game grew, as you'd expect. Is that a really weird deployment for, for him with Austria? Or is that just how he's been used in the past? I'm not sure. I mean, actually for Austria, he used to play a lot in midfield, even though he, he played at left back or center back for Bayern Munich because he was like streets ahead of anybody. But now they don't really need him in the middle. I mean, they have Sabitzer, they have... Uh, Conrad Leimer, you know, they have some, you know, some established midfielders who are doing really well for RB Leipzig there. So they don't really need him too much. I think the idea of him playing as a sweeper was he can basically get the ball and drive forward with the other two guys maybe staying back a bit more. But for me, Hinteregger, who was the left centre back, kind of stepped on his toes a lot and took up his spaces. So Alaba was kind of just stuck in the middle. And I think they tweaked that slightly in the second half. And as you said, it was kind of like, oh, I'm going to do everything myself kind of thing. Because at some point, Austria were really sloppy in possession. They were, you know, couldn't get at least four passes together. Um, and he kind of just said, all right, guys, leave this to me. And he was like center back, center midfielder, striker all at one. Um, and as you said, that that cross was just inch perfect. Um and the striker did well to finish it, of course, but no defender wants to defend that. And especially the goalkeeper, because it kind of leaves you in a weird situation. Do I come out? Do I risk fouling someone? And it was just that bit of quality that Austria needed to get them over the line. Yeah. Well, um, I guess that leaves us with one game to discuss. And obviously, uh, as we do these daily, we'll be able to get into each game a little bit more when there's just three of them trying to cover six Today, with a little extra emphasis on England, means that we got to move a bit faster. But Netherlands-Ukraine, the game of the tournament so far, it, it may leave people, I think, drawing wrong conclusions. Because ultimately, while the Netherlands did blow a two-goal lead and then managed to win 3-2, they blew a two-goal lead without really doing too much wrong. I mean, the first goal is out of nothing. The second goal is, is a really nice cross and header. But um, the Netherlands did dominate this game, and they could have been out of sight by halftime. So what's your headline from Netherlands three, Ukraine two? Uh, well, it's, my headline is who needs a midfield. Mm. Um, it was, I just loved everything about this game. It was so end to end. It was kind of chaotic, which is for me exactly what tournament football should be. You know, there were players just sort of enjoying their time on the pitch and enjoying to get on the ball um, and I really enjoyed it. I mean, I don't maybe agree with you that 
the Netherlands dominated the first half. I thought Ukraine actually had okay. some had some nice moments. They defended really deep, though. I mean, I, I yeah, think they did. They did. I, I heard um, actually the broadcaster say the Netherlands had the most expected goals of a half in the tournament so far. Yeah, um, I don't know. I just I always fancied them on the break. I thought particularly in midfield, Zinchenko was people people don't realize how good he is because he plays at left back for Man City, but this guy was like confidently strutting about in midfield um as the sort of the number six number eight and you know they had some some nice players um but yeah for sure i agree that the netherlands were were a better team and i think frank de boer maybe changed some opinions because people found his football quite boring um and people didn't really understand why he was appointed you know with his such a terrible track record but i mean they scored 24 goals in, in qualifying so I mean, that's not terrible mm. um, in, in eight games. So that's an average of about three a game. So, I mean, that's more than acceptable. And I, I just really enjoyed it. I, I mean, particularly um, just the, the sort of the carefree nature of everything. And, and as I said before, that for me is what international tournament football should be like. It was just brilliant. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I, I thought it was absolutely brilliant. And more of that, please, I guess is the best thing I could say. Just... um. You know, I, maybe I saw it a little differently. I felt that Ukraine was defending just way too deep for periods in the first half. And, I mean, literally eight yards from their goal. And Dumfries, or Dumfries, Dumfries was yeah. just alone at the back post. A lot, a lot of opportunities that he kind of squandered. Obviously, pay a player that we know is very good, looked very good. Um, I thought Frankie Tiong really ran things in the center of the park. There were times just the way he would take the ball and burst away from the Ukrainian midfield so that he could carry the ball to the attack. I think, you know, we, we really love midfielders that pass the ball brilliantly. I don't know that we fully appreciate how helpful it is to have a midfielder who can carry it over that ground too. Mm-hmm. Um, who, was, who, was, who was the standout player for you though? Yeah, for me, it was Frankie de Jong actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really, I really enjoyed what he was doing. Like you said, he, he kind of brings something different, that just ability to glide through players. And that's why he played at centre-back for Ajax so often because they used to basically just give him the ball from the goalkeeper and he would just run through about four players. And having this quality is so unique. Um, And I think, and when you consider how much he's played, I think he was going into the tournament, he was in the top 10 players to play the most minutes. Um, I think he played like 65, 90 minutes over the course of this season, which is just ridiculous. And he was still able to perform in a level like that. And I just really enjoyed what he brought. And maybe the Netherlands now will, will feel that they can, you know, give some teams uh, some trouble because they kind of seem settled now on their formation. Obviously, if you have people like Memphis Depay up front, it's always going to be a nice um, sort of joker card who can create something from nothing and you know it's just to be able to win at home it's a it's a lovely boost for everybody and I'm looking forward to watching them again now actually which I didn't thought I would I would say yeah all right so what's what did we learn what's your takeaway from that game we learned that well I think uh, the Netherlands changed some minds for me that's the the takeaway um, as I said they were kind of considered a bit boring um there was not much enthusiasm about this team at all heading into the tournament but they they sort of won people around with a with a frantic uh enjoyable bubbly 90 minutes and and if they can keep performances going like that 
I think there'll be a lot of people sort of cheering them on as kind of their second team and maybe Frank the boy is going to change some opinions about his coaching and about his uh, and about his ceiling so that for me was was the main takeaway although maybe don't discount Ukraine yet either because I think they've got one sting in the tail left they were a bit fun <laughs> yeah I mean yeah a lot of I think one of the stories of the weekend is just more fun teams than maybe I expected so yeah happy to see it um so let's just do this before we say goodbye. Tomorrow we get our first look at Scotland, the Czech Republic, Poland mm-hmm. and Slovakia, Spain and Sweden. Knowing nothing about some of these teams, the one that stands out to me is Spain, Sweden. Uh, what's your big, exciting thing you're looking forward to on uh, Monday with the three games we have ahead of us? Yeah, I mean, for sure, Spain, Sweden is going to be an, an interesting one. It was kind of the the two biggest sufferers of, of COVID outbreaks within their squad. So it'll be interesting to see how they've managed to cope with that. Um, as well, looking at the, I've got Poland and Slovakia in mind because I, I just love watching Robert Lewandowski. Um, and I'm really sort of excited to watch him again, coming off a record-breaking season and to see if it's literally just him uh, doing his best to drag Poland through the competition because I don't think they have too much quality elsewhere um, but being able to watch Robert Lewandowski for 90 minutes is never a bad thing. So I think people should should watch out for that as well. Yeah, sounds fun. Well, you know what? We'll uh, we'll find out if it's fun, and then we'll come back here tomorrow and talk about it. What do you say? There we go. Sounds great. Yeah, so a two-podcast day tomorrow. There'll be an Arsenal Vision podcast and an Arsenal Vision Euro 2020 Daily with Phil Costa, which is not wordy and very easy for me to say and remember, so that's good. Uh, please follow Phil on Twitter at uh, underscore Phil Costa. Thanks, Phil. My name is Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. Whoever you support and wherever you are, remember, it's coming home. The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine. Stop noticing. But you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour 3-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com